0: Had disagreements between themselves. And instead of handling the matter in their own church with uh, the elders adjudicating between them, they what did what? Well, they went to the courts, to the pagan courts, and they asked pagans to judge between them. And then in verses 12 to 20, other serious sexual sin in the congregation. In chapter 7, it shows us that there was an attack upon marriage. In chapter 8, there's conflict over legalistic matters. And again, there's clear opening up of spiritual pride. In, chapters, in chapter 11, verses 1 to 16, it opens up the sin of sexual anarchy where women were taking authority over men in the home and also in the church. And by doing so, we're rejecting God's order and plan. And this also appears at the end of chapter 14, the chapter we're reading this morning. Then in chapter 11, verses 17 to 34, it points to their sins at the Lord's Supper, that they were rude and that the rudeness was based on wealth and social class, that rich people were sitting at the Lord's table eating and eating well when right next to them were brothers and sisters in Christ who were hungry and had nothing to eat, that they weren't waiting for each other at the very table that's supposed to be unity Ended up being division, and uh, some people high, some people low, and a, a complete lack of love and affection, and caring, and and mutuality with one another. Chapters 12 to 14 speak of the imbalance and disorder in the church, particularly in the worship services. There was an emphasis on one's own spiritual gifts and growth, as over against the building up of the congregation and the feeding of the whole body. There was an emphasis on the emotions and the heart and feelings as opposed to the mind and God's truth. In chapter 15, there was a disbelief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the general resurrection of the dead. So these were the problems in the church in Corinth. And it's, it's, a, it's an intimidating list, if we listen to it, to think of all of the many ways this church needed God's discipline. Now, this morning, let us read together the Word of God recorded in 1 Corinthians, the 14th chapter, verses 1 to 20. This is the Word of God, and it is eternally true. Pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church. Now I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy, And greater is one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets, so that the church may receive edifying. But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking in tongues, what will I profit you, unless I speak to you either by way of revelation or of knowledge or of prophecy or of teaching? Yet even lifeless things, either flute or harp, in producing a sound, if they do not produce a distinction in the tones, how will it be known what is played on the flute or on the harp? For if the bugle produces an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for battle? So also you, unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. There are perhaps a great many kinds of languages in the world, and no kind is without meaning. If then I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be to the one who speaks a barbarian, and the one who speaks will be a barbarian to me. So also you, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. Therefore, let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What is the outcome then? I will pray with the spirit and I will pray with the mind also. I will sing with the spirit and I will sing with the mind also. Otherwise, if you bless in the spirit only, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say the amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not know what you are saying? For you are giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not edified. I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. However, in the church... I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others also rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brethren, do not be children in your thinking. Yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. Now here in chapters 12 to 14, in the middle of the book, Paul's addressing a particular problem. The Corinthians believe that speaking in tongues is a great indication of the piety and of the spiritual zeal of an individual. They believe that of all possible proofs of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, tongues is the greatest proof. Now, of all the passages in the book of 1 Corinthians, the one we're most familiar with is 1 Corinthians 13. But the point of this chapter, what we call the love chapter... Is that the gift of love is a greater proof of the indwelling Holy Spirit than any other gift he might see fit to give us. And specifically, tongues is not the ultimate, but love is. This is the overarching theme of these chapters. Now, we also have here another error addressed by Paul. There is an epidemic of spiritual pride among the Corinthian Christians which focuses overmuch on the charismatic or what we would call the Holy Spirit-inspired spiritual gifts. There also, though, is an overemphasis within those gifts of the Spirit on tongues and to a parallel degree on the emotions, the feelings, the individual's own heart, which was brought to the fore in these public expression of tongues. So there was an abuse of the gifts of the Spirit which caused discord and division in the Corinthian church. And Paul began to address the problem head on in verse 1 of chapter 14, which we just read, where he says what? He says, follow the way of love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts. So if their spiritual gifts are not following the way of love... They're no good because they're violating the very thing the gifts are supposed to build up. But he doesn't go on and say, forget your spiritual gifts. He says, do them both. In other words, the improper use of a thing does not invalidate its proper use. This is a constant error that we make. And seeing something, we think, well, you know, if that can be corrupted, then we ought to stay far away from it. the, the example that sticks out most in my mind from church history is the accusation that Jonathan Edwards received constantly that there were a number of ext- uh, very irregular things and things out of order in the church at the time of the Great Awakening, and so consequently, this couldn't be of God, and you know if anything negative came out of it, it was it was proof that it wasn't biblical. Well, here we have the church in Corinth. And we see that many things that were going on in this church were not of God. But that doesn't invalidate the church. It doesn't say that Judaism must be right because Christianity has a number of bad things happening with it. And so here we see that the Apostle Paul doesn't say don't desire spiritual gifts because they are violating love in the church. But rather, he says what? He says, follow the way of love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts. And then he says, especially, all right, follow the way of love, eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. We are first of all to love, but we also are to desire the gifts of the Spirit. And most of all, we are to desire that gift of the Spirit, which is the gift of prophesying. Now, I'd like to deal with three questions from this text this morning. First of all, what is referred to here by the gift of prophecy? Second, why is it that this gift of prophecy is to be desired and sought after most of all? And third, what applications are there here for Church of the Good Shepherd? What is the gift? Why is this gift to be desired and sought most of all? And what does this mean for Church of the Good Shepherd? First of all, then, what is meant here by the gift of prophecy when Paul commands us pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. In the Old Testament, prophecy had two major elements, and they're commonly referred to as foretelling and forthtelling. That helps you remember it. Uh, first of all, prophecy had the element most people think of first, namely the foretelling of the future. A prophet was a person who was given the gift of telling men and women what the future held for them or their descendants or another nation, whether that future was good or it was evil. For instance, uh, one of the best known prophecies of the Old Testament is Isaiah who prophesied the birth of Jesus our Lord to a virgin in Isaiah 7.14 where he prophesied, Behold, a virgin will conceive. Jeremiah prophesied the birth coming destruction of Judah and her exile. And there are many other prophecies in the Old Testament. Isaiah 53, the tremendous outline, uh, so particular, so specific, uh, fulfilled in every way by our Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Lamb of God, whose blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. So this is the first aspect, the foretelling, the telling of the future. Uh, under the inspiration of God. But prophecy had another major element, a second one in the Old Testament, and that is that it was used to bring a message from God. The prophet would speak to the people in God's behalf as his mouthpiece. Now, you could open the Bible up uh, in thousands of places and see this and just sort of at random, turn with me to Isaiah 45. This is just an incidental occurrence of the claims of the Old Testament that it's written by prophets who are speaking the very words of God. And this is, after all, why we believe that we worship God by listening to His Word preached. Because we believe as the Word is preached that today we devote ourselves again to listening to the Father from whom all fatherhood gets its name. Isaiah 45, one. In verse 1, you see it begins, Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed, whom I have taken by the right hand, to subdue nations before him and to loose the loins of kings, to open doors before him, so that gates will not be shut. A very, very authoritative statement in its content, but its preface is also authoritative because it begins with the words, Thus says the Lord. Skipping down to verse 11. Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and His Maker. Again, quite a claim, right? And then it says, and what I'm saying is what He said. Thus says the Lord. Skip down to verse 14. Again it begins, Thus says the Lord. And verse 18, For thus says the Lord who created the heavens. He is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it and did not create a waste place but formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no one else. So it's very clear who we're dealing with here. It is the Lord God, omnipotent. He is the one who made the earth. There's no one beside him. And this text that you're reading is from his mouth. This last week I received a letter from a relative of mine who had been asked by another relative of mine Uh, why he believed that uh, it was proper for women to submit to men. Uh, People who do not believe uh, often pick places where the culture is most opposed to God's word. And it's natural for them to point to that place and say, now why do you believe this? And it was very interesting to read my relative's response where he tried to open up Uh, Scripture's teaching, but he had to surround what he was saying about that issue by saying, I realize that what I'm going to tell you is not going to carry weight with you because you do not believe that the Bible is God's Word. You do not believe what it says here over and over again in Isaiah, thus says the Lord. And so you need constantly to recognize that God is not embarrassed. Uh, God is not ashamed. He's, he doesn't withdraw from making distinctions between men. Uh, he, he's not He's not a pansy. And when it comes to uh, His Word, you can separate those that belong to Him and those that don't because those who belong to Him don't withdraw. They don't pull back from the thousands and thousands and thousands of places in Scripture where it shows that this book is his mind, his will, his words. And, you know, probably the most common way that this is shown in the Old Testament is this little phrase that we read over and over again in one chapter. And it's just thousands of places. It says, thus says the Lord. And so when we come to the Bible, we are immediately divided into those who affirm that every word of this book is true that when God gave us this book, He was giving us His mind. This is not the mind of religious men who felt that they ought to record their faith pilgrimage. But this is the mind of God. And therefore, when we read it, we bring ourselves in submission to it. And if we are not in submission to it, we don't claim to have a principle. Rather, we we, we ought to be We ought to be publicly demonstrated to have a prejudice. And the prejudice is against God, against His Word, against what He says, against His teaching, against His commands. And it's a prejudice because it's caught from our culture. But the principle is what God gives us. And we stand on it because He says, Thus says the Lord. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. All things were created by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. So we see two elements to prophecy in the Old Testament. Prediction and exhortation or admonition. There's the foretelling and there's the fourth telling. That's what's clear in the Old Testament. Now, what about the New Testament? Well, in the New Testament, it's clear that both forms of prophecy were exercised. Throughout the New Testament, we have evidence of the functioning of the exhortation or the proclamation, the forth-telling aspect of prophecy. In large part, this is the spiritual gift which pastors are particularly called and set apart to in the Church of Jesus Christ still today. Pastors are men called by God to guard the doctrine of the church and to proclaim within the church God's timeless truths which have been laid down for us in Scripture. And there are places in the New Testament where not just the foretelling, but also the foretelling or the predictive element of prophecy is unmistakable and most obviously in the book of Revelation. There we have an entire book given over to the prediction of what will happen in the end times. John is prophesying under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And if you'll turn there with me to the first chapter, please. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. Revelation, the root word is reveal. And the book begins with this statement. It could be, thus says the Lord. And it's almost that. Chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave Him to show to His bondservants the things which must soon take place. And He sent and communicated it by His angel to His bondservant, John who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. And then skip down to verse 9. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, Write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. So here we see clearly the predictive aspect of prophecy and we have it recorded still to this day. We open the Bible to the book of Revelation and we see what will happen in the future and we see the foretelling aspect of New Testament prophecy. But then even in the book of Acts we have places where men and women in the early church are referred to as prophets and where they are functioning not in a fourth foretelling, but in a foretelling capacity. For instance, if you will look with me at Acts 21 verses 10 and 11. Acts 21 verses 10 and 11. As we were staying there for some days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And so here we see, just incidentally, the appearance of of what happened in the time of the book of Acts. That there was a prophet who did not function in a forthtelling, a teaching capacity, but rather a foretelling, a predictive capacity. Now, this is the gift of prophecy as Scripture presents it to us. From the context of 1 Corinthians, our sermon text, We are led to believe that the prophetic gift referred to here, which Paul tells us to seek in a special way, is that form of prophecy which focuses on admonition and encouragement. Now, a lot of you are going to be frustrated by what I'm about to say because you'll wish that this were my sermon. But I'm just going to be very brief and say this. This is not to say that there is no more functioning of prophets in a predictive capacity, nor is it to say that pastors are the only ones given the gift of prophecy today. I do not believe that uh, the gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy are, uh, have ceased with the end of the apostolic, apostolic age. Um, in the Reformed community, there is a significant division. Um, between uh, teaching elders and ruling elders over this issue. Um, There are many men who believe that with the end of the apostolic age, uh, there has been no more uh, prophetic words that the charismatic gifts have have largely ceased. And um, if you read Calvin's Institutes and his commentaries, It's interesting that you can make various cases from Calvin. There are times where, for instance, he will refer to Martin Luther as an apostle in the context of discussing the apostolic gift and calling. Now, some people would say, well, he's meaning apostle and not the official capacity, but rather as a a great leader of the church who builds the church. It's arguable. Um, There's been a lot of division over this issue. And I'm sure that many of you wish that I would now go off and and speak about tongues and prophecy in a predictive capacity, but I'm not going to do that. And uh, the reason is because there's a prior issue here that we need to hear. Now, you might say to me, well, what were the tongues that they were doing? And I'll I'll say to you, I don't know. I think there are times for uh, pastors and elders and fathers and mothers when they're teaching to say, you know, that's a good question. Um, Calvin clearly believes that the tongues were uh, languages of the time. Uh, But then when he goes into the issue of uh, the the, the spiritual aspect of tongues, um, it's harder to know from his exegesis or his his commentary on this text exactly what he believes. Uh, Whatever the tongues were, though, we know that without interpretation what can be said of them is that they were not edifying to the church. And that's the point that we need to focus on. And there are actually many applications for us as a church uh, in terms of uh, how we live out faithfulness to this text. Last night we were reading family devotions in in the beginning of Samuel. And if you would turn with me... um, to first Samuel Chapter three verse one. First Samuel chapter three verse one. You get the order of the Old Testament, Joshua judges Ruth. It's a sentence. Um, and then comes first Samuel. That's how I remember it. And here's what it says in chapter 3, verse 1. Now, the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord before Eli, and word from the Lord was rare in those days. Visions were infrequent. Now, I'm in danger of doing what I said I wasn't going to do, but I believe that This just incidentally occurring statement is indicative of the way that God works among His people. And that you will go through periods of time where certain manifestations of the power of God will be absent. Other times where there will be infrequent. Other times that they will be poured out. No one can argue that despite what Benny Hinn says, we are not experiencing today the miracles of the apostolic age. And for him to claim otherwise is laughable and he should be silenced. Now, does that mean that there aren't miracles today? No, it doesn't mean that at all. Uh, Does that mean that God does not reveal things to us today? No, it doesn't. And to the horror of many of my reform colleagues, pastors, Uh, I would just say, in this congregation, I'm sure that there are many of you to whom God has revealed a specific thing through a dream, through a vision, uh, through some word of knowledge from someone. And uh, this is part of my experience also. And my other Reformed pastors would look at me and say, there you go, you know, experience trumps God's word. Well, no. Because God's word uh, doesn't invalidate experience. Samuel really did hear a voice. And it took him a while to get what was going on. But he finally did and he listened. And uh, Eli had really heard God. And I have really heard God. Now, am I telling you this morning my own private uh, message from God? No, Um, because it's not authoritative for you. And furthermore, uh, the Apostle Paul is very careful about not revealing some of the things that God revealed to him. Uh, not everything is for the edification of the body. And I would just say that the commendable part of those who are cessationists—that's what refers to those who believe that all these gifts ended at the apostolic, the end of the apostolic age. The commendable part of them is their zeal for protecting the word of god in being the unique and the only fully infallible rule of faith and practice and if you ever get a word of knowledge you ever have a vision you ever have a dream that tells you to disobey god's word it's a vision from hell and and it, 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 i don't care if you saw a bright light and it burned out your eyes it's from hell and the reason is that this is the only infallible rule of faith and practice, this word here. Um, now, having gone on too long about that, uh, There, there is a time for that, but I want to get back into this text about the relative weight of prophecy as opposed to tongues within this church. Our first question was, what is prophecy? And we say that it has both the foretelling and the forthtelling aspect, the predictive and the teaching aspect. The second question is why is it that this gift of prophecy was particularly and is today still particularly to be desired and sought after. And now to answer this question Paul doesn't just examine prophecy in a vacuum but he does what we might call a comparative analysis. He chooses the gift of tongues to compare and contrast prophecy with. Why tongues? Because it was tongues that was the gift that was threatening to engulf the Corinthian church. It was tongues that the Corinthians thought to be the highest gift and greatest proof of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul, in his effort to decrease their emphasis on tongues and to increase their emphasis on prophecy, he makes the following arguments. Follow them with me in your Bibles, please. First of all, in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 10, or excuse me, chapter 14. He says this: Tongues are unintelligible to our brothers and sisters in Christ, but prophecy is intelligible. Then in verse three, prophecy is not only intelligible; it what? It strengthens our brothers and sisters in Christ. It encourages our brothers and sisters in Christ, and it comforts our brothers and sisters in Christ. Verses four to six. Tongues edify, they build up only ourselves, whereas prophecy edifies or builds up the entire church. Verse 5, tongues are good, but what? Prophecy is better. Tongues are good, but prophecy is better. Then Paul goes on in verse 6 and makes it clear that it's God's truth understood that builds up the congregation. And he asks rhetorically, What good am I to you unless I either bring you a revelation, knowledge, admonition, exhortation, a prophecy, or some word of instruction? In other words, Paul's saying, how can the church be built up without God's truth? And how can it receive God's truth or embrace and accept it unless the men and women, the boys and girls of the church, understand that truth? And then in verses 7 and 8, Paul illustrates his point musically. He says, we can't pick out a tune unless there are notes to listen to. We wouldn't be able to guess the melody in the head of the harpist unless she were plucking more than one string. Unless the harp were giving off more than one note. And then he illustrates it with the trumpet or the bugle. And he says, if the bugle produces an indistinct sound, who's going to get ready for battle? It's very interesting, given last week's sermon on the constancy of battle and war for Christians. We live a life of warfare. That uh, he uses this example here: uh, the harp and then the bugle, and it's the bugle that makes people ready for battle. It's very interesting here that at this point Calvin quotes a, a Roman uh, historical narrative where it talks about a particular battle, and Rita probably even remembers it, where um, you have uh, you have the command that a flute is to be used to call everybody to the battle because they're so eager that they're afraid if they blow the trumpet that they'll just cast themselves in the face of the enemy and it will be lost because they're not disciplined. They choose to lower the intensity of the instrument by sticking with a flute at first. Theoretically, maybe later in the battle, they went to the trumpet. Well, in verses 9 to 11, Paul applies the illustration that he's just used of musical instruments and the distinction in tones and notes. He uses it to talk about their body life as a congregation. And he says, If we are to keep from being strangers to each other, we must speak words and sentences which are intelligible. Through their speaking in tongues, the church members in Corinth had done by means of spiritual gifts exactly what they had done in their celebration of the Lord's Supper. They had cut themselves off one from another. They had divided the body of Christ. The central verse of this section is verse 12, So also you... Since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. Since we eagerly desire the gifts of the Holy Spirit, we must go for, we must seek, throw ourselves towards the gifts which build up the church. And as an outworking of this principle of seeking to build up the church, he focuses in verses 13 to 15 on the contributions of the mind and of truth. He says, Therefore, let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What is the outcome then? I will pray with the spirit and I will pray with what? The mind also. I will sing with the spirit and I will sing with the mind also. In other words, people, brothers and sisters, truth is to take precedence over emotional rushes, flashy presentations, and preening peacocks. We are to seek to have fruitful minds as we speak, we pray, we sing that unite the body and that strengthen us individually and corporately. It's not that we're to shut off our hearts, but that if our minds are off, we are not united in building up the body of Christ. In other words, hearts aren't united when minds are dismissed. Now, I know that goes against everything that we think because we're all uh, post-Romantics. We've all been raised in Romantic age. And we think that the heart's at its truest when the mind is dead. You know, real love is love that has absolutely no logical basis. You know? Love that isn't about beauty or intelligence or how rich the Father is. Love that just pops up out of nowhere. and Oh, there's a vision to believe in. You know, infatuation, now that's real love. We all know that, right? You know, that stuff that you get the first day that you ever meet her and it lasts for life. And I'm a romantic, so that's why I can be prophetic about this. I'm the guy that sent my wife flowers after our first date saying, someday, <laughs> and it just pops up. There it is. No basis in reality. I didn't know she'd be a good mother. I didn't know that she'd be a wonderful pastor's wife. But my heart, you know. When we use our minds, we allow all those around us to share in the leading and the unity of the Spirit. That Spirit, which Scripture tells us, is the Spirit of Sentiment. The spirit of emotion. Now, come on. How many of you know that I'm misquoting Scripture? That spirit which is the spirit of what? Truth. The spirit of truth. And then Paul says this. He says, even the uneducated will be able to say, Amen. Amen. This is a habit that we used to have that we don't have anymore. When people lead us in prayer and when they read Scripture, there should be a verbal response on our parts. And particularly there should be an amen. Uh, we've, gotten, we've gotten so wrapped up in having our minds involved that, that, that we often uh, fail to take seriously the degree to which our bodies and our voices and everything should be responsive in, in, in you know, the lecture hall has corrupted the church. There should be reciprocity, mutuality. there should be intimacy between those who lead us and the congregation. And Paul points to this, just haphazardly mentioning this, this habit uh, from the Hebrews, but all through history of people, responding publicly and saying, "Amen, I agree, I agree. That's right. I agree with that. We should do that at the close of our prayers, our pastoral prayers, our prayers of confession. Now, there's one additional thing here that Paul does, just in case any of you have, think, are suspicious of his motives. This is often the case when you're preaching and teaching. You're, you're exhorting your children. You say to your children, uh, son, I'd like you to go outside and start my car. And I would like you to clean off my windshields so that it's warm and ready for me to go this morning. And your son looks at you and says, "You know, you're really a sort of disgusting, slothful, uh, uh, lazy, good-for-nothing dad. You know, you, why? Why should I get cold? And you don't have to. And you." As leaders, you need to be able to anticipate the accusations of those that you're trying to lead. And I don't have an answer for that particular problem. (laughs) Um, But Paul does have an answer for those who are sitting there thinking, yeah, Paul, the reason you're not into tongues is that you don't know how. You don't have the gift. The Holy Spirit hasn't made you a preening peacock. Don't you wish you had my colors and my tail? And so, what does he do? Look at what he does. In verse 18, he says this. I love it. Paul's such a. He's such a. He's so normal. You know? It's like he's here. He says, I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. <laughs> in other words, don't think this is sour grapes, people. I invented tongues. <laughs> He says, however, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others also, rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. Isn't that beautiful? He lowers himself. It's so lacking in dignity. We're all so so focused on protecting our dignity today, you know. Don't wrestle with a, a pig in mud because a pig likes mud, you know. And so here is the mud of, well, you, you don't know how to do it, Paul. And he says, I'll get down in there and wrestle with you. And I must be a fool to do this. But, you know, I can speak in tongues more than all of you. In fact, I could do 10,000 words. You could only do 10. But, you know, I'd rather do 10 words that build up the body than 10,000 that are a preening peacock. And then finally, verse 20, brethren... Do not be children in your thinking. Do not be children in your thinking. Yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. Anybody have a King James Version? Okay, read the King James Version there. Verse 20. Uh Did you hear that? that? That ignorant version done by the Brits. It says what? It says, In understanding be men. Now, do any of you know still today in this late period of time what it means to be a man? Have any of you had your father look at you and say, Be a man. He's teaching you how to do a job and you just, you just hit your finger with, a na- with, with the hammer and your tears coming out of your eyes, and you set the hammer down and don't want to work anymore, and your father looks at you and says what? Be a man. Well, this is what Paul is telling the church. Paul is telling the church, in understanding, be men. And if there was ever a word for America today, and for the American church, and actually for the church around the world, it is this word, in understanding, be men. We're surrounded by churches that keep their people perpetually on milk and where there's no challenge and where people are confirmed in ignorance, confirmed in uh, a very superficial and cheap and emotional and sentimental uh, devotion to God. You know the problem with that? The problem with that is that when the storms and the wind and the rain come, that house will fall because it's not built on the Word. God is not a God of sentiment and emotion and romanticism. He's not a God of cheap rushes and preening peacocks. And when He tests us and when He shakes us, it is the house that's built on the rock and the rock is what? The rock is the Word of God, the teaching of Jesus Christ, the, the, the unity of edification of the mind. And the truth is, you will never get the emotional rush from seeking it. You will only get it from devoting yourself to God's truth and His Word. And as you devote yourself to meat, all of the beauty of the emotions will follow. But if you devote yourself to the emotions, they'll never come. You might be able to work up crying and and, and laughing and clapping and dancing. But it's all false because when the shaking comes, you won't stand. And so Paul ends this section by saying, in understanding be men. This morning, Tim Wagner, there's a class called Dad's Kids in the Bible, and you get to be a certain age, which my daughter Hannah is, which I think is age 13. Good. And uh, at that age, all of the children of our church are to come with their fathers to a class, and they spend that year learning the children's catechism. All right? We took a test this morning, and the dads took it with the kids. And... What it is, is you you ask a bunch of questions. It's the Socratic method of teaching. And it goes like this. Hannah, who made you? What else did God make? Why did God make you and everything else? How can you glorify God? Why should you glorify God? Okay. Okay. And it goes back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. Well, Tim Wagner this morning, who is our teacher, was explaining to us why we we do this because it's so different than all of the other Sunday school classes. All the other Sunday school classes, you take a little discrete text of Scripture, a little story, you know, a little thing here and there, you know, David and Goliath, you know, creation, all this. But why come and bring? And the reason is that what you do is you bring all of Scripture to bear on a particular question. Instead of taking a particular Scripture, you take a question, a truth, and you bring all of Scripture to bear on it. And as you see what all of Scripture says about the atonement, about the offices of Christ, prophet, priest, and king, then all of a sudden scripture coheres and it begins to have an order that you never saw before when you just flipped it open and read here and flipped it open and read here and maybe even read the whole book but didn't bother seeing how it related to an Old Testament book. You see, this is the kind of thing that it means in understanding, be men. It doesn't mean that only men here are called to do it. It means be firm, be uh, have a chest. <laughs> you know. Uh, Have some testosterone. You know, be men. Have courage. Go for it. You know, give yourself to this devotion. In the early, or in the Reformation times, there was a great conflict between the Reformers and the Roman Catholics. Uh, And one of the areas that they had their most intense conflict was the fact that in the church, the Roman Catholic Church of the time, uh, the people could understand almost nothing of the public worship, of the reading of the Word, of the Lord's Supper, because it was all in Latin. And so the Reformers right away said, no, 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 no. You, you ought not to speak in tongues. you see that? And so in Calvin's section of expositing this text, he goes on at great length saying how wicked the Roman Catholics are that they continue to force their people to sit in the worship of God in Latin. All right. They've, they're not even able to understand what's going on. How do, he says, how can you take a text like this and not repent of, su- of such a worship service? Well, today, in many evangelical churches, many Reformed churches, such a sophisticated vocabulary is used. Such, such large words, such difficult concepts are used by me, and men like me, that it is just as if we are speaking in tongues. Now, think of this. The Roman Catholic Church and the Latin Mass, Tim Bailey and his vocabulary. Okay? And now, take these specifics and open them up in your brain. Cogitate on it. Ruminate on it. Think about it. How do you devote yourself to this? In your Bible study, in your seat talking to your children, do you... Speak in a language they understand. Do you use illustrations? Or do you fail to call them to be men? You just want to create sort of this constant dependency upon you and have them be your little girl the rest of their lives. You see, when I get done preaching, take it and open it and open it and and, and think about it. Meditate on it. Because the Lord will add to His Word as you meditate and ask Him to, to open it up to you. Now, this morning, we have the privilege of going to the Lord's Supper and of hearing it in what the Reformers referred to as our own vulgar tongue, which is another word for the vernacular, another way of saying the vernacular. In other words, in uh, words and sentences that we can understand. And I encourage you as you come to this table, don't take for granted the fact that we now, once again, and... Most Roman Catholics, praise God, are able to come to this table and to actually hear the Word of God in their native language, in their common tongue. So I encourage you now as we come to this table to hear the Word of God as it is recorded for us in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. There we have the words of institution given to us by the Apostle Paul directly from our Lord himself.